Happy almost Halloween, everybody. Welcome to another episode of You Don't Have to Yell. I'm your host, Dan Sally, and I'm recording live in Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. Now, this month, we're talking all about guns, and last week we learned that you're more likely to die of a bullet wound if you're around a gun. Novel concept. Now, my home state of Massachusetts is evidence of this, which despite having a larger population and higher overall crime rate than our more rural neighbors to the north, has much stricter gun laws and a lower per capita instance of gun death. And it kind of begs the question, if you're so much safer when guns aren't around, why doesn't every state implement more restrictive gun laws? Well, to help answer this question, I asked attorney Jason Guida, that's G-U-I-D-A, not to be confused with mixed martial artist Jason Guida, to join me. And he runs a law practice that's dedicated 100% to helping people denied licenses to carry firearms in Massachusetts get their gun rights restored. Now, he has some interesting commentary on how generally law-abiding citizens in the state can find themselves caught on the wrong side of Massachusetts gun laws and some of the downsides to a legal structure that on the whole has kept gun violence here to a minimum. I'll be back at the end with closing comments, but without further ado, Attorney Jason Guy. Uh, first off, thanks for taking the time to speak to me and and I guess just to get started, can you tell everyone listening who you are and a little about your background? Absolutely, um, Dan. Thank you for having me. My name is Jason Guida. I'm an attorney. I specialize in firearms licensing, restoration of rights, and firearms-related criminal matters. I represent gun dealers all over the state of Massachusetts. I formerly served as the director of the Firearms Records Bureau, which is the agency in Massachusetts that oversees firearms licensing and firearms policy. So that's really where my background is, and I specialize in this area because of that background. Obviously, Massachusetts is cited, at least, as having a fairly strict set of gun laws and a fairly strict set of regulations around uh, you know, owning a firearm. So maybe to walk me through this, can you, can you help me understand kind of the process? So let's just say, you know, I get mad at somebody and I decide I want to shoot them. So maybe I, like I catch my neighbor stealing my paper and I'm going to go out and get a gun. So what's obviously sure. bad example. I'm assuming sure. you don't represent clients with that motive. However, <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm going to get a gun. What's my first stop? You bet. So the first thing you would do, um, let's let's put aside the fact that you want to murder your neighbor, but yes, um, <laughs> the, the first thing you would do, um, or any person in Massachusetts that wants to get a firearms license, is to start with the basic firearm safety course. Massachusetts has required since 1998 individuals um, have to take a specialized Massachusetts basic firearm safety course. It's taught by certified instructors, certified by the state police of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. The course is not just a course that teaches you how to handle a firearm, but also has um, or should have uh, specialized training and knowledge about the Massachusetts firearms laws. As you mentioned, Massachusetts has a pretty intense uh, firearms licensing and firearms regulation scheme. Again, I'm an attorney that specializes in this area. My entire practice is based on helping people navigate the complicated firearms laws in Massachusetts. So 
it's helpful to at least have a threshold kind of exposure to what you're going to be dealing with um, mm -hmm. when you get the license. That's the purpose of this course. So that's going to be your first step um, Got it. in the process. It's typically, it can be anywhere between three hours, six hours, depending on the class and the, and the curriculum. Yeah. Okay. And so then obviously they, they have the class where don't shoot your neighbor over stealing the paper and <laughs> yes, <laughs> and assuming that doesn't dissuade me. So I take that class, sure. I pass, I've, I'm, I've now passed that firearm safety course. Mm -hmm. So then what happens after that? Right. So the next thing you're going to do is download the application. Uh, some of the police departments have the application. You're going to fill out the application. Uh, there are quite a few they call them trick questions, if you will, questions mm -hmm. about have you ever appeared in court, which can be tricky to people because they think about cases that have been sealed or expunged or annulled or dismissed and think they don't have to disclose them. They think about juvenile events. They think they don't have to disclose those. So the questions on the application can be tricky and they really, if you don't know, it's good to have help. Mm -hmm. um, but the next step would complete that standardized applications, three pages long, um, submit that with to your local police department. That is your licensing authority, the chief of police in the town or city that you live in. And you're going to have to follow their protocols for submitting that application. Every department has a different process. Some of them have you schedule an appointment online. Sometimes you have to call there. Sometimes the firearms licensing officer who handles these applications only works on Tuesdays from two to four. Some of them require uh, reference letters and additional documentation of residency. So you need to figure out exactly what your department requires and what the process is for filing that application um, before, before you're able to take that next step. So it, it sounds like obviously there are state laws, but it really sounds like the state laws give the local authority a lot of freedom yeah, in terms of what additional regulations they might attach to it. Yeah, you bet. So our case law says that the chief of police has a, a great deal of discretion in firearms licensing matters. So for example, if you live in the city of Boston, the city of Boston requires you to, to in addition to applying for the app, the license, you have to take it and qualify at their range on Moon Island, uh, where they supply a firearm and you have to show competency. There are other departments that require detailed letters of reference. There are one, one or two departments that actually require you to take a test before you get the license, where you actually have to answer standardized questions about the gun laws before they'll actually issue you the license. So yeah, the police departments have quite a few hurdles that they add on, uh, depending on the department and depending on where you live. Some departments, you simply file the application and they call you the next week and tell you to come down to get fingerprinted and photographed. It's, it's easy. Some, a lot of departments aren't like that. Okay. And now, obviously you mentioned there are some questions on the application that sure. folks get tripped up on, which, which are the ones that most commonly sure. result in people getting tripped up? Sure. The most common issue is the question, have you ever appeared in any court for any criminal matter? A lot of people will answer that question, no, even though, yes, they had actually appeared in court. Because in their minds, they're thinking dismiss charges, things that have been sealed, juvenile offenses. I was 14. It doesn't count. 
mm-hmm. it does count and the police departments find it and you sign that applications under the penalties of perjury. And there's actually a separate criminal offense for failing to disclose information on that application. I represent individuals who get charged with that. So you have to be very careful. And again, I, I can't caution your listeners enough if they're going to go through the process and they have questions, get help. Don't, don't try to do it yourself. You know, best case scenario, they deny your application. Worst case scenario, you get charged with a crime. Got it. Got it. And so I fill out the application, hand it into the police department, do whatever else they need me to do. And now I can get my gun. So, no. So the next step. (laughs) There's more. There is. So the next step uh, is the, what they call the interview. And I'm using air quotes that your, your listeners can't see. Okay. It it is an interview and it isn't because typically what you do is you meet with the licensing officer. That is the person at the police department who's been assigned to firearms licensing and processing those applications. Typically that licensing officer doesn't also make the final decision. Typically that's either the chief or the deputy chief or somebody higher up on in the organization who's going to make the decision. But you have an, what they call an interview where you go in, uh, you're fingerprinted, you're photographed. The police will walk through the application with you and make sure that you answer the questions correctly, or at least re-ask the questions so that if you say no to say that question about appearing in court, they can then testify later at your criminal trial. Well, I asked him, did he ever appear in court? They do this, um, there's a little bit in some departments, a little bit of intimidation for people um, to kind of put them ill at ease, Mm -hmm. but um, that's that's that step. That begins the substantive background check process. So Massachusetts has a uh, thorough statute that uh, limits access to firearms by certain prohibited people. People have been convicted of felonies, misdemeanors, violent crimes, domestic crimes, drug crimes, gun crimes, people who uh, are subject to an act of restraining orders, people who who have been committed for mental health or substance abuse. All of those people will not pass a background check, and that background check goes both to our state criminal record database, federal criminal record database, as well as Department of Mental Health records and any other court records. Um, It's fingerprint-based, and that's the background check process. So the police department is doing that first to see if there's anything on your application that, you know, or on your background or history that's going to prohibit you from getting the license. That's not the end of it. Let's say you, Mr. Sally, are a uh, otherwise law-abiding citizen. You don't have any criminal convictions on your record. You've never had any sort of confinement or commitment for mental health or substance abuse. You're a great guy, um, other than you want to kill your neighbor. Um, <laughs> The, the next step after that, the police department, in addition to checking your criminal history, is also determining your suitability to hold a firearm. That is the chief's, chief of police's discretion to determine whether or not he believes issuing you a firearm license would 
pose a risk to public safety. And that is a conduct-based determination, not simply criminal, but any conduct, charged or uncharged, which would lead them to believe that you're an unsuitable person. And they can deny based on that. So what are what are some examples there of Sure. Common examples say uh, there are multiple calls for service at your home because of domestic related issues. Mm-hmm. You know, your wife calls the police uh, or the neighbors call the police because there's a big argument going on, no one's arrested or kids are are causing problems and the kids say, you know, they, they, that you hit them and you say you didn't and there's no ultimate arrest out of it, but there's a Department of Children and Families investigation. That That's kind of an example. Say you're the, you know, the town drunk, you know, you've been known to, mm-hmm. you know, walk down the middle of Main Street, you know, after a long night out, cause a, you know, cause concern for people. You know, typically, though, it's typically charges that are on your record that didn't uh, get adjudicated in a conviction. So, you know, drug charges, violent charges that you weren't convicted of, Mm -hmm. but still appear on your record because, again, it's conduct. So, you know, for example, you're in a domestic violence situation, you know, you, you strike your wife. Your wife has a right not to testify against you. She chooses not to. That case gets dismissed. But that doesn't mean you didn't hit your wife. And that's what our case law says. Our case law says, look, just because the charges didn't result in a conviction doesn't mean you didn't do it. And the police chief is allowed to use that conduct to say no when you apply for a license. Got it. So, like, let's just do a hypothetical here, and I'll use my neighbor again. And I don't know why I keep using my neighbor because I actually really like my neighbors. But, uh, but, but, so, so let's say again, neighbor doesn't like me, and sure. neighbor's always phoning in false charges against yeah. me. And the cops are always coming by, and is that enough, for example, yeah. to give a chief pause and say no? It is, and and that's the problem. I, I you know, you're kind of hitting at the core of what I do is those types of phone calls, those types of issues. Com- even more common is the bad divorce. So the ex-wife is constantly calling the police, saying you you're supposed to pick the kids up at four, but you're there at three fifty that afternoon, or you uh, took the car and you weren't supposed to take it that day. Things like that. You bet. Uh, the police, first of all, have absolutely no incentive to give you a firearms license. Even if you sue them and win, you appeal their decision and win, you don't get damages, you don't get costs or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so the police certainly are going to consider that. And if there's smoke in their mind, there's fire, which means that you're left with the burden of quite frankly, appealing that decision. And the case law says it's the burden of the applicant to prove that the decision of the chief is arbitrary and capricious, which means there's absolutely no basis for it, Mm -hmm. which again, that's a very high, very difficult standard to meet. But in your situation, you've got a neighbor who's making stuff up. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to prove he's making stuff up. So, just to recap, I go take my safety course, I fill out my application, I have my interview, and everything looks good. It's all thumbs up. Do I get my gun now? 
or is there something else? Okay. So you had your interview. There's no criminal record. Um, there's no, your neighbors, you get along with your neighbor, even yeah. though you want to kill them. Yeah, yeah. And so the next, the final step for the licensing process is going to be a determination of what they call use restrictions. So the police department can decide that you will get, say, a license to carry, which is what you applied for, but you're only going to be able to carry it and uh, carry a firearm in certain circumstances or situations. So, for example, for targeted hunting purposes only, which means that you'll be able to keep the firearm in your possession, in your home, and use it for home self-defense. But once you leave your home, the carrying of that firearm is going to be restricted to carrying it to target ranges or hunting ranges. Sometimes they use employment restrictions, which means you can only carry a firearm when you're working, say you're a security guard. Sometimes they use a sporting restriction, which is kind of an expanded target in hunting. It also includes hiking and, and, and other hunting activities, fishing. So uh, that's the next step. And, and if you live in a city like Boston, uh, Woburn, Worcester, Lowell, uh, those communities, uh, you should expect that you're going to get a restricted license to carry that, again, may not be what you want. And even though you have no record and you're a great guy and nobody knows you want to kill your neighbor, you still end up with uh, this license that's isn't really what you applied for and paid for and went through all this trouble to get. Mm-hmm. And and so, for example, they might say, it's okay to keep a gun in the home for self-defense, but we don't want you driving around with it in your car, for example. is that-, that That's what the restriction is. So you'll get the license to carry and it'll say license to carry on it. Underneath that, it'll say targeted hunting, which means that you can only carry outside your home to a range or to a hunting activity. So if you're going to Applebee's with your wife, you know, for the four o'clock special, you're not going to be able to carry a firearm and protect yourself there. Is there anyone who's ill served by those restrictions? Because in my mind, again, as a non-gun owner, uh, in my mind, I don't really want people driving around with guns in their pockets. Like I see more areas where Mm -hmm. things could go wrong. So yep. is there anyone out there who's maybe not served so well by those restrictions? Sure. Sure. So particularly in communities that have these strict restriction policies, they typically have exceptions to the policy because if you don't have exceptions, then it by it, on its face, it would likely be found to be arbitrary and capricious. So uh, there was recently a case out of the city of Boston where they talked about the appeal of a restriction and they talked about what they're looking for. And typically they're looking for business owners um, who, you know, have brick and mortar businesses, handle cash. Uh, Sometimes they'll consider attorneys who's, who are meeting with clients and witnesses or doctors who are making house calls, things like Mm -hmm. that. But say you're an individual who has been victimized by crime in the past. Say you're a landlord that owns properties in uh, high crime areas, areas that are known for break-ins and vandalism. Say you're a contractor that specializes in buying and redeveloping abandoned properties. In those situations, you may be running into people who wish to do you harm, you know, drug addicts who have 
who have taken residence in an abandoned property that you purchased or a tenant who um, doesn't feel that they want to pay the rent that month. Those are people who you know, may have a legitimate need to carry a firearm for self-protection, and those people are being denied what uh, at least the First Circuit has said is part or an extension of that Second Amendment right to carry a firearm outside the understood, home. Understood. Understood. So again, if I'm one of those people and I get denied, then my next step would be to hire somebody like you and appeal that. Is that correct? Or Depending on the reason for the denial. So again, there, we've kind of created or explained basically three hurdles or silos of information that you have to wage your way through to get that license. You know, if you're ineligible, meaning you've been convicted of something, you know, typically what I would do for that person is look into it and see what, if anything, we can do to remove that disqualifying factor. Um, if you're unsuitable, well, then you would hire me to look into whether it's worth seeking judicial review of that chief's decision. And that's largely guided by our case law, which is strongly favorable to the police chiefs mm-hmm. in that determination. And then again, with the restriction, you would retain me to look into what their policy is, how they're applying that policy. Because again, as I said, if if it's a policy where, uh, for example, they give all business owners unrestricted licenses mm-hmm. and you're a business owner, but they don't like you, um, you're a business owner, but you own a pot shop and they don't like pot, yep. that would be a good case. But sometimes if you're just a guy who lives in Boston and you, you're a software developer they're really their their restriction policy has been largely upheld by the courts and you're not going to fit in there you're not going to win yeah so all right so i guess we're we've been talking for about 20 minutes now mm-hmm. i still don't have my gun uh so so we've <laughs> so we've gone through the application background check interview sure. restrictions when yeah, you when, when do you get yes, that license please. you yeah. bet Yep. So you've taken the class, you filed the application, you've had your interview. Uh, the statute says that the police department has 40 days to process that application and give you an answer. Uh, I would say probably 99% of the departments aren't hitting that 40-day mark. Typically, the departments are anywhere between 60 and 80 days. That's the typical turnaround time. So you're going to wait at least two months typically before that license will come in the mail and you'll get a phone call to come pick it up. Or perhaps they, if you're in a nice town, they might mail it to your house. At that point in time, you'll get the license. You'll get a PIN number that goes with it that, help, that you use to buy a firearm from a dealer. That, those two things come together. And then at that point in time, yeah, you've waited two months. Hopefully, um, you've been able to stoke that anger yeah. um, at your neighbor and you can now go get your gun. Well, that's what I was <laughs> going to say is at the end of that process, I'm probably not mad anymore. So, right, well, right. Or maybe the neighbor moved. Yes, or, yeah, something you know. like that. There's a lot that could happen. Yeah. And so now mm-hmm. I have that license. I go to the gun store, find the gun I want to buy. Sure. Then how quick is that process? Is there any waiting period there? Or do I just, am I able to walk out the, walk out of the store with one? Typically you're able to walk out the store unless there's some sort of snafu with the background check because there's both the state 
license with the PIN number, but the federal government also has their own background check that takes place at a gun dealer. So typically in that situation, you're going to be able to, in most instances, go in and, and, and leave that day after those two background checks are done. Both mm-hmm. the PIN number is run to make sure that license is still active because mm-hmm. our state records are uh, pretty much simultaneous to that license. So you could have the license in your hand, but you might have a restraining order that was just pulled that morning. That will tell the dealer, oh, wait a minute, there's a problem with your license, don't take it. Um, So we have a pretty good system there. But then there's also the federal background check system that just in case something got missed at the state level, the feds would be, you know, hopefully be able to pick it up. So theoretically, though, you should be able to buy a firearm. It may not be the firearm you want because we have a whole bunch of rules and regulations regarding what kind of firearms a dealer can actually sell you, but you might be able to buy something that day. Okay. Okay. So, and then I have my gun. Now I'll ask you another question. One of the things you hear a lot from the pro-gun crowd on waiting periods is this whole concept that in the process of waiting to own a firearm, something bad happens. And then all of a sudden you're you're left without suitable means of self-defense because of some bureaucracy. Is that a mm. is that like a realistic fear or or no? So I think the the core of that argument really comes from the idea and at least what our Supreme Court has said, which is that the protection in your home with a firearm, with a conventional arm, Mm -hmm. is a fundamental right under the Second Amendment. Mm -hmm. And I think that argument comes from the idea that why should I have to wait to exercise my right to protect myself in my home and protect my family? You don't have to wait. Well, I mean, with exception, you don't have to wait to express your free speech rights. Mm -hmm. Um, if you want to march in a parade, sure, you have to get a permit and wait for that. But nothing stops you from writing a letter to your congressman or standing out on your front lawn and declaring your political beliefs or mm-hmm. blogging or whatever people do. Yeah. So why why do you have to wait to exercise that right to protect your family? Yeah. What is the likelihood that that you know, time period, something's going to happen in your home. I mean, that's kind of hard to pin down, but I think the real core of that feeling is, look, it's my right. I didn't do anything wrong. I've been a good guy. I'm Dan Sally. I've never had any criminal matters. Why can't I exercise a right that our founding fathers gave to me? Yeah. So it's, it's more like, why should the burden fall on me, the citizen? Mm-hmm. In this, in- yeah, why is there a presumption of lack of innocence yeah. versus presumption of innocence? Yeah. And now, are there any specific types of communities that are very difficult to get licensed for? So is it you know, rich, mm-hmm. rich suburban areas, uh, urban areas? I'm assuming rural is maybe sure. a little easier. Like, what are the, are, is there any commonality sure. there? Um, so typically you're going to find your more urban areas, your, your areas that deal with gun violence on a pretty regular basis are going to have more stringent policies and have put maybe more thought into the licensing process and the hurdles they're going to put, put up before someone gets the license. 
But that's not always true. You get uh, chiefs who come into their position with their own feelings on licensing, the Second Amendment, you know, firearms in general, and some communities that, that you know you would think are otherwise pretty rural or pretty um, reasonable and, and, and even-handed, you'll find are extremely difficult um, and unreasonable. Uh, you also find other department places and departments where you would think, wow, or this, this is going to be really hard. This is a you know, strict urban area. And it is pretty quick and pretty easy. And a lot depends on the staffing and who they put in as a licensing officer, but also it depends on the chief's own personal feelings or policies on these types of, of on licensing. Got it. So it is. So it sounds like it's kind of arbitrary. Is that is that fair? <laughs> yeah, I mean that that that's the word we like to throw around. But it really it, it's it's um, it's very interesting to see how if you live in one town and say you have you know some sort of ding or dent on your record, you have no problem getting the license. You pick up and move to another town, and suddenly you're being denied. I've had many cases like that where I've had guys that have had the license for years and years and years in one community. They get married, they move, they buy a house, they apply in the new community, and suddenly they're being told no. I've had other guys that have actually lived and had licenses for years and years and years in the city or town that they lived in, and a new chief comes in, and suddenly they're told no. Understood. Understood. So, you know, obviously, like you, you probably have a number of people coming to you looking for help. I'm, I'm, I would guess some of those people just kind of are disc are, aren't qualified in the sense that either they're clearly not meant to own a firearm or, uh, or their case might just be too difficult. You know, mm-hmm. who are, who are sort of the good guys that get caught up in this or who are the people who get sure. caught in the gears and really maybe shouldn't? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. I, you know, and and you hit on it. There, there, you know, our our again in our Supreme Court, our Supreme Court has held that uh, convicted felons and those who have been committed for mental illness are are prohibited from having their firearms rights, or they lose their firearms rights, and that's perfectly acceptable. Mm-hmm. So there are many people who come to me and say, I've been you know, convicted of multiple felonies. I want my rights back. There may not be anything I can do there. But the people that really get caught up, I think, that the people that are in you know, kind of this gray area are the guys that I like to say have rehabilitated. People who, um, and I've had quite a few cases Regarding this, I've actually had one case that went up to the appeals court um, in Massachusetts. The the idea that you could have an addiction problem or you could have some uh, mental illness or something that is some sort of transitional issue, depression, anxiety, that required treatment, that required help, and you you did the right thing, you got that help, and now you've gotten that help. You come back, you know, you're, you're trying to rebuild yourself as, as a citizen, as a, as a person who belongs in society and has all the rights and privileges that everyone else has. 
and you sit down and you apply for the license and you're not prohibited. You've never been convicted of anything that would prevent you from having the license. But again, the chief is given broad latitude to consider conduct. So the fact that you had a drug problem and you were charged with possession of drugs and you you know, were on probation, but you weren't convicted and you went to rehab and you've been clean for five, 10 years, the chief may still deny you. And you have a heavy, heavy burden to overcome that denial in court by showing again that you're rehabilitated. I think the chiefs for a long time, uh, you know, kind of have this mindset that once you're unsuitable, you're permanently unsuitable. And again, they have no incentive to consider otherwise. Why, why would a chief want to give you a gun license? Mm-hmm. So the, the people that are really you know, caught up in this are the people that have made mistakes, which we're human, we make mistakes, but have learned from those mistakes and have rehabilitated. However, that, that is, whether it's time growing up, going to rehabilitation, going to therapy, whatever that rehabilitation is, they're not permanently unsuitable. And unfortunately, the chiefs often think otherwise, and it takes a a great effort to overcome those decisions in court. Can you think of any examples from your, your past case history that stand out to you or as, as especially noteworthy? Sure. I, I mentioned my client, the case that I had before the appeals court, which we ultimately ended up losing, but really on technical reasons, not on the substance, but the substance or the case was really about my client was a pharmacist and he went through pharmacy school um, and during sometime during his education, he became addicted to uh, medication or, or uppers, basically, things that kept him awake, kept him going for, you know, to study and to get through work and things like that. And it, and it became an addiction. And ultimately, you know, he, he got, got a career, he got his license, and he ultimately got caught essentially prescribing stuff to himself and diverting stuff coming in um, that he was using. Mm-hmm. And when that happened, you know, as he described it and he testified to this, it was kind of a house of cards falling in. And many addicts can talk about that. You know, his marriage was in shambles at that point. Money was a problem. And obviously he was losing his career. He was losing his license. He wasn't going to be able to work. And it was that rock bottom for him, which caused him to really go through intensive rehabilitation, get clean, get, you know, the therapy, the mental health help he needed to cope with, uh, you know, life and not use this crutch uh, drugs to rely on. And he described this in detail. And he went through this program that that the state pharmacy board offers, he was able to ultimately get clean and sober and, you know, rebuild his life. And again, as I I mentioned, rebuilding your life for many people includes trying to get back 
you know, these rights that and, and become a citizen and the, and the rights of a citizen include the right to protect yourself with a firearm. And, you know, five, five years after he had been clean and sober, he approached his local police chief and applied for the license. And the chief denied him. And really, you know, we can dispute the chief's reasoning. But what I felt it was is, again, that, you know, once an addict, always an addict. There's always going to be a risk that he's going to reoffend. There's never going to be a chance for him to, you know, there's never going to be a time where he's going to be clean, really, in my eyes, was really the mentality and, and, and the angle of the testimony. Now, the district court came back and said, look, there's enough here to deny him at this time. The court really made it clear that it only five years had passed. Basically, we need more time. We didn't feel strongly about that. We thought enough time had passed, and my client at that time was traveling the country as a uh, rehabilitation or, or, or addiction specialist and was training other people in his field, how to recognize signs of addiction. We thought he was really kind of a well beyond the typical relapse stage. And we appealed and we appealed that decision and we won and the court agreed. And then the chief appealed that and went to the appeals court and the appeals court ultimately held that the superior court, which, which reviewed the district court decision wasn't allowed to reconsider the facts and therefore, the district court decision had to hold. So basically, we're in a stage where we're basically waiting a couple of years to try again. Um, but I think that wasn't a good decision. I think he was in that in that time. I think you know, there's got to be some sort of recognition that he had done what was needed to be done to show that he was no longer addicted. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds to me because as you're telling me the circumstances why a police chief might deny someone. So past history of mental illness, past history of, yeah. of drug abuse or whatever. You know, in my mm -hmm. mind, I'm what I'm thinking is, well, okay, so what's the big deal? Like, but it sounds to me like what what you're saying is it's not so much the the gun itself or not so much being able to own it as much as it is being able to claim their right as a as a full citizen and, and mm -hmm. feel as if they've been redeemed and reaccepted in a society as if they've kind of reformed themselves in a way. Is that, am I hearing you right there? Or am, am I? It, it's certainly a big point for many of my clients um, that moving on from something or, or showing or proving that they're no longer this person who appears on paper. And again, whether it was addiction, mental health, Sometimes it was growing up in, in violence. You know, I've had guys that grew up in a bad circumstance who, when they were younger in their teens, uh, were involved in violent acts, you know, fights and stealing cars and, you know, using weapons and things like that, but grew up and got out of those circumstances. Yes, for those people, oftentimes, the key here, the what they're working towards is turning the page, you know, showing that they are, in fact, good and trusted and, and, and are part of society. Not all of them, let's be clear. I mean, many of them are very much 
this is my right. I want the gun. I'm going to carry it. There are bad people in the world and I need to be ready at all times. There's certainly a good core of that. And those are the, the kind of the messages that you see when you're talking to people who are very second amendment friendly and, and, you know, but really, you know, my good clients, and you asked me at the beginning, who are the clients that I tend to help? Who are the clients that I quite frankly, you know, enjoy and want to help? It's those people that are trying to turn that page and, and, you know, prove that they're not the person that they used to be. Mm -hmm. I think I, for, for someone like, again, for someone like me, who's, Mm -hmm. uh, again, doesn't, doesn't necessarily understand the gun culture uh and and for people like myself i think um you know the i think the thing that's often overlooked is the the fact that within the gun culture within gun owners there is a strong attachment to gun ownership and their sense of of individual liberty um and Mm -hmm. i think on a much larger scale if we're to really reach any common ground on this, um, I think folks who may want tighter controls on guns will need to understand and be sensitive of that fact, you know, when, when kind of approaching. So really just appreciate your time, appreciate you giving your, your expert advice. Um, and, uh, and again, just, you know, note to my neighbors, I love you. I like you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You can can sleep soundly. (laughs) That was Jason Guida and little plug. If you find yourself denied a license to carry in Massachusetts or need an attorney who specializes in cases related to self-defense involving a firearm in the state, this guy's your man. You can find him at guidealaw.com. That's G-U-I-D-A-Law.com. Now, what was clear from my conversation with Jason was that it's not just about owning a gun. There aren't really any stories of people getting murdered by armed intruders while waiting to have their licenses to carry approved in Massachusetts, but what we do have are people whose right to own a gun is really part of their image as a full citizen of the United States. And when they're denied that right, it's effectively like being denied full membership in the society for them. You know, this sort of lines up with some of the polling that we discussed in the last episode, where the majority of gun owners really feel that owning a firearm is an essential aspect of their liberty. Um, it's an identity thing, and to be honest, at this point, I, I don't get it. I don't understand it. So, to that end, next week, I've asked an ardent firearm advocate to join me and explain the importance of gun ownership to those born and raised in the gun culture. I'm thinking I'm going to learn a lot. I hope you'll join me. Until the next, this is Dan Sapp signing off.